just want you to know that you are indeed our guest, and we appreciate you being here. If you haven't done so already, if you look in the pew in front of you, you'll see a little blue card. We'd love to get your name and uh, email address and phone number, at least, so that we can keep in touch with you. And uh, you can hand that to me or one of the other members here, and they'll get it to the right place uh, after the end of the service. You know, this year, as we have been uh, talking, uh, our elders have laid out before us a plan, and and uh, our theme for the year, of course, is inward, outward, and upward. Last Sunday morning, what we did was we looked upward, O oh God, you are my God. And today, what we want to do is sort of look outward and think about some things in regard to that. A number of years ago, almost 25 now, a few of us got together and decided that we would meet. We called uh, eventually what we were doing, polishing the pulpit. And I still remember those early days when only, you know, 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 of us were getting together. And what we were doing when we, when we did that is we were learning and we were building relationships with each other and we were encouraging each other and those relationships have lasted for many, many years, for more than two decades, for many of us now. And it's just been a very beneficial thing. None of us really ever dreamed that we would get much over 50 people. We thought if we ever got to 50, we'd just be blowing the walls out. But this year, we'll probably have somewhere around 5,000 or more who, have, who will attend polishing the pulpit. But you know some of those old-timers, those who were there with us in the first, those who were there, you know, when it was just a few of us sitting around and, and we were learning from men like Wendell Winkler and Tom Holland and even Flavel Nichols, he came and spoke to us on a, a couple of occasions and helped those young preachers who, who we were at that time, um, he, they helped us so much. I still hear some of those old-timers say something like this, I wish we could go back to the way it was in the beginning, when, when it was really, really small. You know, I know they don't mean anything by that. I know there's nothing derogatory because they keep coming back every year, even though there are thousands who are there now, and, and they wouldn't miss it for the world. They're as much behind it today as they were then. But I really sort of understand it at the same time. You know, you, you have that closeness and that intimacy. You're able to be with with others who are, who are like you, still get to do that. But, you know, the way we think about it, if we can help others uh, learn, we can help others build relationships that will last for decades, if we can uh, encourage others and have fellowship with others, then uh, it's all well worth it. And it's not that it's too big because we want to help as many people as we can. Now, I said that to say this. Sometimes we hear folks within a congregation of the Lord's people, sometimes within the church, we hear people say, well, the church is getting too big. We just can't have as much intimacy and fellowship, and I don't know everybody, the church is getting too big. You know, I, I'm pretty sure that if we have that kind of attitude, we need to do some serious repenting, because that's not what we read about in the New Testament. We read about a church that was growing and continued to grow. What I want you to do with me is think about a few verses as we begin our lesson today. In the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 47, the Bible says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's reading from the English Standard Translation. 
You know, when we think about church growth, it's not about filling up a building. It's not about putting people in pews and then having to rebuild another building because we've outgrown that one. What it is about is saving souls. That's what church growth is all about. Saving souls. Those who are being saved were being added to the church by the Lord, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 47. And, and you know, the saved who are added to the church, they're in the, in the church, not in the world. And that's where we want people to be, isn't it? We're talking about the salvation of as many souls as possible. We're not talking about filling up a building. We're talking about populating heaven. And so, we understand that this growth that was in Acts, in the book of Acts, it took place and it took place every day. Day by day, this translation says, some translations have the word every day. And so as we think about it, there's growth. But how much was the church growing? Think about another passage, Acts chapter 4, verse number 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now if we go back to chapter 2, 3,000 people were baptized on the day of Pentecost, and people continued to be added to the Lord's church, according to the passage that we just read. And now they're up to 5,000. The number of men, watch this, the number of men came to be about 5,000. The word that's used there for men, translated men, is the literal word in the New Testament that means males. The number of men, the number of males came to be about 5,000. In the book of Matthew chapter 14 at verse 21, the same concept is uh, mentioned. But I want you to notice what Matthew adds here in regard to the feeding of the 5,000. Matthew says, and the number, uh, 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 and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides the women and children, according to what he had to say. Same thing is said in the book of Matthew chapter 15, verse 38, in regard to the feeding of the 4,000. I believe that when we're reading here in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, that we're having an account, we're given a number of the men who were added to the Lord's church, who had become members. You know, it's usually the case, especially in congregations of the Lord's church, that women outnumber men within a congregation. That's generally the case almost anywhere you go. What about the women who were Christians in the first century? Well, we're not left to wonder because we go to the book of Acts chapter 5 at verse 14. The Bible there says, And more than ever believers were added to the Lord multitudes, now watch this part, both men and women. And so we have a great, great number of people. Acts chapter 6 at verse number 1. And these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Notice the terminology that's used here. English Standard translates it in this way, increasing in number. Maybe you have your King James Version open, and it simply says, uses the word multiplied in that passage. What do we mean by that? What is that? What is the word that's translated increasing in number and multiplied? What does it mean? Well, it literally means to increase greatly. And it's used again in Scripture in the book of Acts chapter 7 at verse 14. We know that when uh, Abraham's descendants went down into uh, to, to Egypt, 
You know, back in the Old Testament, the Bible says that there were about 75 persons in all. But in the book of Acts chapter 7 at verse 14, only three verses later, watch this. The Bible says, But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased, watch this, and multiplied in Egypt. There's our word. The people increased and multiplied. The church in the first century increased. The church multiplied. What does that mean? What is the concept to increase greatly? Seventy-five people went into, into Egypt out of Abraham's family. Seventy-five went out, but after several years, the guesstimate is between two and three million that came out. That is what multiplied means. The church in the first century was growing by leaps and bounds. It was growing greatly. Well, here's another one, Acts chapter 21 at verse number 20. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands, English Standard Version says, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're all zealous for the law. He's talking about the Jewish people. And he says, how many thousands is the way that it's translated in the English Standard. Some translations say, how many myriads of people. That's the word that's literally used, but how many is a myriad? Can anybody define how many a myriad is? Well, I can only see what it's, how it's used in the New Testament to get perhaps an idea. In Acts chapter 19, at verse 19, the Bible says, after Paul had preached in Ephesus and there was all kind of things that were, was going on, but people were being uh, converted. And the number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them. What's that have to do with anything? We're going to find out how many books they burned. How many books did they burn? They burned them in the sight of all and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Literally, we have the word penta, five. Penta myriads. Penta myriads. 50,000. It's probably that we would do no damage to the text when we look back in Matthew chapter 21 at verse 20 when the Bible says that uh, many thousands, we could probably literally translate it many tens of thousands were added to the church. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 just a little while later. They're increasing, they're multiplying. Many tens of thousands were added to the Lord's church. Why did the church grow so much in the first century? Ever contemplated that? Ever thought about why the church grew so much in the first century? Somebody says, well, maybe I, I think I may have the idea. Perhaps it was the miracles. The miracles were the reason the church grew so much in the first century. You know, think about being able to see someone who is sick literally be healed. Someone without an arm or a leg or, or something, you know, having it restored to, to full capacity. A blind person who's able to now see even dead people raised. You say, that had to have had an effect and I don't deny that it may have had some effect. We do know the miracles were for the proof that what the disciples, the apostles were teaching was indeed from God. We understand that. 
But may I call your attention to Jesus' own time? How many miracles did Jesus perform? And what did many people do to Him? Rejected Him. It wasn't just because of the miracles. Even though it may have played a a helping part, it wasn't just because of that. Somebody says, well, maybe it was just the right time. And, And the early church grew because it was just the right time for the church to grow. We do know that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a a woman, under the law, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. There was something about the timing that God did see. We know according to Romans chapter 5, verse 6, while we were still weak, at the right time, Paul says, Christ died for us. We know that the language was common. We know that travel was good. We know these facts about that time. But who is to say today is not also the right time? How many more opportunities do we have to reach people in our communities and in our world with the technology that we have? with the printed page, house-to-house, heart-to-heart, those kinds of things, with the Internet, people watching on Facebook, literally from all over the world. See what's going on here at Midway this morning. Who's to say it's not the right time for the church to grow dramatically again? It's probably more than it was just the miracles and just the right time. There had to be something else that was driving it, something behind it. What was it? What I want us to do is think about what the Bible has to say by looking at one of the greatest mission-minded churches of all time, which was Antioch. Antioch right up on the coast. Antioch not... All that many miles from Jerusalem, you know, Jerusalem like here and Antioch's way up here, but one of the greatest mission-minded churches of all time was that church. We read this morning, or or Dane read for us this morning from Acts chapter 11, verses 19 and following, and and he did a great job, but he read verses 19 through 21, and I want to go back and read them again. Think about what what he's written for us. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Let me suggest to you this morning that this great mission-minded church was converted, had its foundation built on the preaching of Jesus. Men came and preached Jesus to them. What does it mean that they were preaching the Lord Jesus Christ? There are several words in the New Testament that are translated 
preaching. This is one that is used a number of times, but it's not the normal word for preaching. The word, the normal word that would have been used in that day would, would be to herald. This word is euangelizo or euangelion. Uh, what were they doing? They were speaking the good news. The good news about Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something this morning. Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, knew what it meant to preach Jesus. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Acts chapter 1. Look at verses 1 through 3. Acts chapter 1. Remember, Luke is the writer. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach till the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I want you to notice a few words out of that passage with me. I want you to note that, first of all, that Luke says that something about the first book. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the first book that he had penned, the book of Luke, the gospel account penned by this same man. But when he was writing that book, I want you to notice what Luke was doing. What he wrote, what his purpose was. He said, I'm writing to you, Theophilus, about this Jesus, what he began to do and to teach. And what I, what I wrote in that book about what Jesus began to do, travel from place to place, preach the gospel, perform miracles, do all of those things, and what he began to teach, the content of his message, I'm writing that to you until the time he was taken up. His death, his burial, and his ultimate res, uh, uh, ascension into heaven. I'm telling you about, told you about all of these things. But even in the midst of that, look on down to verse number 3 of Acts chapter 1. He's telling about Jesus and his death, and after his death, that he's alive. But notice what he says. He presented himself alive to them. He presented himself alive. The word presented here is a word which means to stand beside, to exhibit, to substantiate. You see, when Jesus presented himself alive by those proofs, Luke is saying that he made it clear that, yes, I was dead, but now I'm alive. You see, Luke knew about the facts what had gone on, and that everything that was being said about Jesus by the apostles was true. Notice even what he says, going back to the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He writes to that same Theophilus, but he says, beginning in verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning where eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Now watch verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, 
to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why am I writing it? Verse 4. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Two things I gleaned from that reading that I want us to think about this morning. Number one, Luke said, I've been an observer. More than just an observer, he literally said, I've been checking this stuff out. I've been looking hard at everything that these men have said. I have examined it and know it to be the truth. And not only had he examined it, he says in the verse number 4 there that because he had examined it, because he was writing these things down for Theophilus and later for us, because he was doing that, Theophilus could have certainty about the things that he had heard and believed. You and I today can have certainty. In our Bible class in the auditorium this morning, we we uh, were talking about the harmony of the New Testament accounts of the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These men have written down things so that we can know. We can know Jesus. We can know what He's all about. Notice that He said that, that in back in Acts that Jesus presented Himself alive. He did. It wasn't some... some hallucination that people were having. Just really quickly in the book of Luke chapter 24, as Jesus came to, came to his apostles, I want you to notice in Luke 24 verse 39, something Jesus said. He tells the apostles on that night, he says, see my hands and my feet. It's I myself, touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Why did he show them his hands and his feet? They had the scars of the nails. The resurrection of Jesus was true. It was a fact. And so, as we think about that, we need to understand that to preach Jesus is to preach the real, provable facts of the gospel. Men and women need evidence for what they are to believe. And that's what happened at Antioch. When it was done, the Bible says, a great number in Antioch believed and turned to the Lord. Today, all too often, people are driven more by emotions than they are by evidence. Much of the preaching that's done today is designed to play on the emotions of the hearers. To get them all stirred up and into a frenzy. And individuals can indeed be worked into a frenzy for Jesus. We'll just call it that this morning. But you know what? People can get emotionally stirred up about Jesus, but all too often... It's not long-lasting. We know the eunuch in the book of Acts chapter 8 at verse 39, after having Jesus preached to him, asked about being baptized for the remission of his sins, 
Philip said, See, here's water. What doth hinder? Or, or here's water. If thou believest, thou mayest. What happened when the eunuch was baptized? The Bible says he went on his way rejoicing. There was some emotion there. We need emotion in Christianity. I'm not preaching against that. I'm just simply saying that when we're stirred only by emotion, it doesn't last. Let me give you an example of that. Do you remember on the Sunday as Jesus entered into Jerusalem before His crucifixion? Do you remember the scene that's depicted in the Scriptures in regard to His entering into Jerusalem? Sometimes we refer to it as the triumphant or triumphal entry. People were there. They were shouting to Jesus and shouting, running before Him. They didn't even want him, the donkey on which he was riding to touch the ground, so they put palm leaves in front of him, the Bible says. Some of them took off their coats and laid them on the ground in front of Jesus. And they cried out, Hosanna to the Lord! Hosanna! Uh, oh, save! An expression of great adoration. All of this is going on on the Sunday. But on Friday of that same week, less than a week later, many of these same people, according to the book of Luke 23, verse 21, those who were so emotional about the coming in of Jesus kept shouting, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! The Bible says in verse 22 of that chapter, a third time He said to them, this is Pilate speaking, Why? What evil has He done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Verse 23 says, They were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And his voices prevailed. They were in a frenzy for Jesus on Sunday. By Friday morning, they'd lost that. If we seek to build our faiths solely upon emotions, if we seek to build the faith of others, those that we're reaching out to solely upon emotions, that emotion will fade. It truly and truly will. You know, emotionally charged churches are many today, and some of them draw, draw great crowds but they have a really difficult time adding believers. Well, you see, they draw great crowds until the next best thing comes along. By the way, where are all the fidget spinners? Y'all know those little things that they held and they spun? Everybody had to have one. I thought I was going to have to change my lesson this morning because I saw uh, one of the kids come in this morning. I won't identify uh, which one, but he came in. He had some stuff in his hand, and I looked. I thought it was fidget spinners. I thought he had, you know, like 30 of them. Had to ask his mother. No, it's not fidget spinners. Glad those things, this was her words, glad those things have gone. You know what fidget spinners were? A fad. People got excited about them. They paid, some of them paid big bucks for the ones they had. 
You, know, you had to get a really good one so you could sit there and spin it good. It, it's somewhere at the bottom of the toy box now, covered up by some of the other things probably that have taken its place. And that's what sometimes people do. They get all fired up about Jesus. They're emotionally charged until the next best thing comes along. There's got to be a better foundation upon which to add believers. We know who it is. Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. What made the difference at Berea? Oh, that great speaker Paul and Silas just whipped the crowd into a frenzy and they just jumped on the Jesus bandwagon all at one time. No. They searched the Scriptures. They checked it out. They wanted to be sure the evidence was there. And the evidence was reliable. And the evidence was true. And when we see the real Jesus, what He's done and what all He means to us based upon provable facts. That's when believers will be added to the Lord. Believers were made when the evidence was examined and found to be true. Very quickly this morning, what's another reason they grew so much there at Antioch? Well, probably this. The early church grew because they preached often and to all. Often and to all. What do you mean by that? Acts chapter 8 at verse 4, the Bible speaks about those who were scattered from Jerusalem. So those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Where did they go preaching? Well, we know some went, according to Acts chapter 8, some went to Samaria. Philip did. We read uh, some of the things that are there. We know when Philip left there, he was taken by the Spirit and found at Isotus. But we also know, according to Acts chapter 11, that those people who went about preaching, who were scattered because of the persecution of, uh, of uh, Stephen, the Bible says, beginning again in verse 19 of Acts chapter 11, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. I want you to pay close attention to what he said next. Some of those people who had gone, the only people they would preach to was the Jews. And there was a reason for that. God had specified that the gospel was to go first to the Jews and then to the Greeks. 
They came to these places preaching only to the Jews, but something else happened there. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. The gospel got to Antioch because they were scattered abroad. They were preaching. But also, not only were they preaching, they began preaching to everyone, to the Hellenist also. What was the result? Well, according to verse number 24, there in Antioch, a great many people were added to the Lord. Why? Well, if you go on down in verse 25, they were... They were teaching, they taught a great many people. You know, I can't leave it alone. I I had to ask, reckon how many folks they taught. The Bible doesn't specify a number here. But that phraseology that's used there, a great many than people, A great many. How many is that? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us how many converts were made, but I can can find out a little bit more about that phrase. Just for the sake of fun this morning, Luke chapter 8, verse 32. Jesus had gone to a certain place. There was a man who was demon-possessed. He cast the demon out. This is the occasion when he cast it out into a herd of swine. Luke 8 verse 32 says, Now a large herd, there's our word that was used over here about how many Christians were made, how many people were taught. A large, not called a herd, they're called a herd here when it relates to the pigs. A large herd of pigs was feeding. How many were there? Luke just says a large herd. Mark tells us that the Lord gave permission to the demons to go into the pigs. The unclean spirit came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep hill. You see, I'm convinced that when Paul and Barnabas preached in and around Antioch, they taught a great many people Like back in and around Jerusalem, we're talking thousands. No wonder the church grew in the first century. Mind you, it wasn't just that Paul was speaking in public, drawing great crowds. Sure, there were occasions when there were a number of people who were gathered together. But don't forget what Paul said in the book of Ephesians chapter 20, or rather Acts chapter 20 at verse 20 when speaking about the church at Ephesus. He reminded them that he had taught them both publicly and from house to house. Now Paul preached, and he may have preached to crowds, but he did personal evangelism as well. You know, one real reason we're not adding believers is perhaps because we're not preaching, we're not evangelizing 
enough and to all. Folks, don't we do this? Don't we sometimes just wait on opportunities to fall into our laps? Isn't that the way that it happens? We just wait on someone to show up, knocking on the door and say, you know, I sure would like to know about that Jesus guy. Don't we just wait on it sometimes? For some reason, that doesn't sound like the New Testament. What was going on there? Do we sometimes prejudge people unworthy of the gospel because they're not just like us? Shame on us. That is the case. Folks, the bottom line is this. If we want to add more believers, we must evangelize more. And evangelism is not just inviting people to church to listen to the preacher. We have to evangelize more. As you look outward this morning, who do you want to go to heaven who's not already on that path? Is there some family member or friend or acquaintance that you have that you really want to see in heaven? Who are you going to evangelize this year so that more believers will be added? Somebody says, I can't, I don't know enough, I don't have time. None of these are the appropriate answer. They're truly not. There are multiple steps in planting seeds and all of us can play a part somewhere along the way. Folks, we've got men and women who are preparing themselves in this very congregation to help do that very thing. The actual study that can, that, that can lead to the conversion of a person to Jesus Christ. Maybe you could play a part by helping to connect those who are willing to teach a Bible study with those who need to study the Bible. See, if we want to add believers, our part is to build the foundation by preaching Jesus Christ. Euangelion, or euangelizo, preaching the gospel. Teaching the gospel. If we want to add believers, our part is to preach Jesus often and to all. Every opportunity that we have. And it's not until we start doing more of this that we'll start looking more like that church of the first century that we desire to be. That's what we need as we look outward. This morning it may be that you need Jesus in your life. If He's not there, I know you do. There's no doubt about that. Why not be baptized into Him, having your sins washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ? Maybe you're here, you believe in Him, you're willing to repent of the sins that you have in your life, make the great confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We'd love to assist you with that. 
Maybe you're here this morning and you've sort of turned, turned aside from Him. You really need to come back to Him. Whatever your need may be, if you need to respond in a public way today, why don't you do it right now as we stand?